welcome to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In today's episode, I'm talking to DNA expert, Dr. Amanda Hartley. Amanda has a true passion for biology and in particular DNA in all its guises. She's had a fascinating career working in a variety of sectors before she turned her attention to science education. Amanda not only plans engaging hands-on science work for children in the primary sector, but she has also written three best-selling children's books focused on the escapades of Annabelle and Harry, aka the DNA detectives. I hope you'll join me today to hear Mandy's unique view from the lab. Today with me, I've got Dr. Amanda Hartley. Welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Thank you very much. Very excited to be here. I uh, really appreciate you giving us some, some time and to talk about your your story of science, if you will, and then talk a bit later about um, the interesting work you've been doing with uh, the primary age uh, uh, pupils. A lot of uh, the conversations I have with science educators tends to be in the secondary arena. So I'm really glad that you've come on because you've got a unique kind of insight into those uh, the children of that age. So it's really nice you could come on today and talk about what you've been up to. So it's been nice to uh, to have you on. So I'm gonna start off with a bit of, ba- bit of background about you and um, kind of your science journey in a sense, because I like to know how my guests became so fascinated with science in the first place. Um, so let's start off with my standard question, which is in terms of you personally and your uh, thoughts about science, was it kind of an internet, uh, kind of a internal curiosity you had as a, as a young child, or was it kind of some kind of external influence that maybe kind of pushed you towards uh, science? What was your experience of science growing up, be, be, um, kind of younger than eighteen? I guess I'm talking about. Yeah, well, I think for me, um, I've just always had an interest in science. It's just, you know, when you're at school, you have your favourite subjects, and for me, it was always. Um, biology and science and like you say it was a curiosity I was really fascinated in how things work and actually for me it was just a real wonder it was a real amazement you know to find out more about kind of nature and you know the biology behind that and how it works so yes always a very keen interest in science. So you didn't need any kind of convincing by your teachers that it was this was a good good pathway to go down and um, that it was, you know, there wasn't kind of um, kind of any barriers for you. It sounded like it's a real natural interest. That's, that's great to hear. And particularly DNA, which is obviously um, quite a, it's a very large bit of biology, of course, um, but it is a section of biology. And what it was it about DNA specifically? Because you could have studied loads of things in biology. It's, you know, it's a massive wide field. What was it about DNA that really uh, made you think about this is the direction I want to go in for my kind of science journey? Well, obviously, you know, primary school, you know, when I was at primary school, DNA, you know, didn't really know about it. And it was only really when I was at university and I was doing my final year project um, and I was extracting DNA from a mosquito. And that was the first time that I saw DNA in a tube. And it just I genuinely had a light bulb moment and I just looked at this you know, this molecule that looks like um, a, a strand of white cotton in a tube. And it just blew my mind that, goodness, in front of me are the instructions to build that mosquito. And that blew my mind that contained in there, you know, and it's it, it then struck me that all living things have DNA. So if I was to study DNA, I could work on any living thing I could work on plants or trees or animals you think of your favorite animal there's somebody somewhere doing working on DNA to do with that animal so it, it gave me a lot of scope and I could work anywhere in the world at, you know 
people all around the world are working in these incredible labs working on DNA and there's so much scope in what you can use it for you know forensics medicine conservation and it was just the most exciting moment of seeing all those possibilities in front of me from just looking at that tube and it genuinely I was like I'm in I love DNA I want to work with DNA and I see me I know you talk about that experiment with looking at the DNA in the mosquito I assume when you went to school that wasn't those types of experiments I know they do in secondary school now similar types of experiments to see that kind of uh, that, that strand of DNA but I assume that when you were at school you wouldn't have done that um, and that was the first time you would have seen that um, that type of experiment would that be true? Yeah absolutely it was a very very new um, emerging and exciting field and actually in a way that's why I was so excited to do it as my project. You know, you have a whole range of projects that you can do for your final year project. And seeing this DNA one, it was just so exciting and it was just taking off. And um, it was just a wonderful thing to be to be part of. And it just massively, you know, piqued my interest. You know, here's something that you can use. And for the mosquitoes at that time, um, you know, it was about trying to find out why they were getting resistant to insecticides and, pe and pesticides and potentially, you know, help fight malaria. So it was, you know, I've always wanted to do things that help people as well. So it was, an, it seemed a natural progression for me. So really important work. And it's kind of no surprise, I guess, to me when I look at your kind of uh, your, your profile is that you decided to do more research. You went to Scotland, was it? And you were looking at fish. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, as I was saying, so all living things have DNA. And if you think of an animal that you like, you can work with DNA on that animal. And I've always been really into fishing, really keen fisherwoman. Okay. Um, and so for me to work on salmon and also I was working on haddock and sand eels, that was like my dream. It was fantastic, you know, and to be in this beautiful area doing it and going out into the North Sea and, um, you know, taking samples and things like that it was like my my dream job and you know at, at that time the, the stocks of cod were really diminishing to an almost frightening level um, and this was the opportunity to use DNA to conserve those stocks so as, as I tell the children in my workshops I helped um, you know conserve stocks of, of fish in the North Sea for their fish fingers and they love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to see the kind of you know the, the, the almost the concrete application of uh, kind of the mysterious things some people think scientists do but thinking about you know what's the, what's the real impact of those uh, in, uh, in their own communities and their own lives so it's great to kind yeah. of highlight that. So I guess you had this love of, love of fish and fishing um, what was it that kind of moved you on from that? Because if that was your perfect job and you were doing research, you could, you know, fish in these beautiful um, Scottish locations, I imagine. Um, uh, what, what was it that pulled you in a different direction after that time where you were studying um, the DNA of uh, different fish stocks, etc.? Well, again, the, the beauty of working with DNA is you can transpose different fields. DNA has lots of applications. And in my heart, um, really what I'd wanted to do was work with with people and help people and um, my degree was pathobiology so the biology of disease um so I, I didn't want to be um, doing surgery on people or, or things like that but if I could help them from a genetic basis then that was perfect um, and this job came up in the haemophilia center which I thought would be incredible finding mutations of people with blood disorders uh, so things like um, haemophilia von Willebrand's um, and things like that and that was you know and then to be in London when you're young is a great place to be and that's the wonderful thing about DNA that, that people have got labs all over the world you know but I, I really fancied going to London um, and it, it was an amazing experience. 
And did you you did some work um, with very young children, so babies as well? Can you tell us a little bit about that and what kind of work, how your your expertise and DNA helped that um, section of uh, human society, I guess, or the age group? Sorry, age group. Yeah, well, I, I decided to leave London um, and uh, I became the deputy manager of the Molecular Genetics Laboratory in Exeter, and okay. they are a, a specialist um, laboratory for diabetes in children. Right. Um, and in particular, um, they had set up this screening service. So they found, um, they'd identified these genes that children that are born with diabetes, so they call it neonatal diabetes. So children with mutations in these particular genes can't produce any insulin. So they're born, um, you know, they're born diabetic. And from the day these children are born, they have to have these, uh, they have to have insulin injections every day. And you can imagine as a family how distressing that is your newborn baby is having to have a really painful injection every day um and and if the sugars go wrong you know it can have consequences for that child and also children with neonatal diabetes they don't meet their milestones so um when i'm telling children about this because i do a lot of careers talks to to primary school children and secondary school children and i showed them a video of this little boy uh, he was diagnosed, he had a mutation in one of these genes that meant he couldn't produce insulin. And you see him, he can't talk. He is about, he must be coming up for two, two, uh, two, two and a half. He can't walk, uh, sorry, he can't talk and he can't walk. He's dragging himself across the floor. Now we, in our laboratory, we screened the DNA from this particular gene to find his mutation. And when we found the mutation, it meant that he definitely had neonatal diabetes. It wasn't the normal um, to, uh, maturity onset diabetes. So it meant that he could be treated with a drug called a sulfonylurea. Now that can be given to the baby like Calpol. So okay. instead of these horrible injections, that child now has um, a, a medicine that they can take. And within a few months, that child, and then I show a second video, and this little boy is amazing. He's then kicking a football across the room and he's talking and he will then go on to develop normally and the impact on that child and his family is absolutely huge you've had a child where you think oh they're going to be delayed at everything they're going to struggle and suddenly he has a normal life trajectory it's massive and that laboratory was helping families all around the world the work the work that they did was so critical and to be part of that team and changing families lives is just the most incredible privilege you know it was wonderful wonderful work sounds amazing and and again i guess quite a difficult project to not walk away from but to, to decide to do do something else because uh, you know again you're looking at the i mean earlier we we're talking about you know that impact on fish fingers on children's lives and yes. um, this the, the, on this context you know very direct medical application which as you say has that knock-on effect of um making families' lives easier as well. And you can see that direct from your science. It's very applicable, which again, makes me think about um, sometimes uh, when I've taught children, secondary school students, children not kind of realising sometimes the impact can science to ha can have and not, not, yeah. not kind of working out that the kind of things they were learning at the time might have, you know, uh, far reaching consequences if they decided to, you know, to, to go down that pathway. So really fascinating work because I think you, is, was the next step in your, your science career moving into criminal justice or have I missed a step out? Was that the next thing you did? Because yeah. that sounds quite exciting as well. Um, yeah, so could, right. could, if it wasn't the next step, could you tell us about, how did that come about? And, you know, what kind of what kind of problems were you solving there back in London, wasn't it? Yeah, well, no, I uh, so at, at 
that point, um, I started going out with my now husband and okay. he was back in Norfolk. So right. we had to kind of make a decision. Um, so I moved to Norfolk and um, I started working in this paternity testing company. So relationship testing. Right. And I then helped set up the forensic laboratories that are now used by the Norfolk Constabulary. So um, we then got involved in doing paternity testing for the criminal cases. And we also did a lot of private investigation work. So there was a, a particular case where um, a very important high level politician had been killed overseas and there'd been um, the body had been burnt and set fire to. And the family wanted to know there was a, a question over whether it really was this politician. And so we were sent samples of, of the, you know, the charred remains and we tested them and we then had DNA samples from the family so we could match them up and work out whether this really was their relative. And, and it's I mean, that's that's huge, not only um, the criminal impact, you know, verifying that it is this person, but also for that family, not knowing that your, you know, your loved one has has been killed, but knowing um, that that's them, it's a kind of, you know, you you can say goodbye you you know you you know what's happened to them um you know and, and and it brings a little bit of peace so that's a huge thing to work on um and the other thing that we were working on um there was you know sadly we all know there's there's kind of paedophile rings and unfortunately some of the victims had fallen pregnant and we were able to look at the dna um from from the offspring and then work out who the what the profile is for the father which the police can then put into the national dna database and actually in that case though it was a very very sad case from that profile they were able to identify the offender um, and they, they got put away for a long time so again it's it's such a different um a different thing from the medical work you're doing but you're you're helping people in a in a different way um, and I feel so lucky that because I chose to work on DNA because of that project there were so many avenues open to me of different applications of using the DNA and you know these things were so rewarding and then you know you have personal cases so we had uh, 70 year old twins that came to us they had been split up at birth yeah. didn't know they had a twin um, knew they looked the same at 70 years old they they found each other but couldn't believe that they were twins so we tested the DNA obviously it was identical and I got to give the results to these women you know and and wow. you know sometimes you cry because you're so happy and so they were crying down the phone I was crying and it was just what a wonderful gift to give to people you know it's um yeah very 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 lucky to have done what I've done definitely yeah and really it kind of uh really kind of it kind of gives um real concrete examples as well as that how it is so uh varied uh, because i think when people say, talk about science sometimes you or when people do science i think sometimes you feel that you become more and more specialist more and more specialist more and more specialist but it seems yes. that dna although obviously you are a specialist in dna there are a lot of different branches from it that you've been able to dip in and out of and really done some fascinating work and um solved some again some real pro you know uh, concrete problems uh, of you know humans humans in various different guises whether it be medical or in, in your last case criminal so it's absolutely amazing that you've you've been able to take those techniques and and um, shown that they can be applied in different areas so that must be really really rewarding and I guess that 
um, when you've done all that fascinating work, I know you kind of then kind of turned the corner a little bit again and started thinking about um, uh, education and, um, you know, uh, specifically kind of younger children in, in science, uh, which often it isn't such a big focus on definitely in terms of primary, primary school science in, in, in my experience. Um, what was it that was it just uh, obviously you had some children at that point. Um, uh, was it having a family that made you think, oh, I want to kind of move in this direction now? What was what was the next next step and, and why did you take it? Yeah, well, um, at the time I was managing the laboratory, which is a full on job, you know, it's um, and I was the quality manager of the laboratory as well. So, you yeah. know, the minute you came in, it was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, there was so much to sort out, keep on top of. Um, yeah. And having two very small children, it just for me, it. It, it, it wasn't working and I felt that I, I couldn't be a good mum and, and do a good job at the same time as well. So yeah. for me, I needed to take a step back and yeah. think what I could do next. You know, your children aren't young for very long and I wanted to give them the best of me. Um, and um, I, I wanted to use those skills. As I said, I've been so lucky um, in my career and I was in a very very unique position actually that I had worked with DNA I had this passion for science and I I, I was a mum so I knew what got kids excited what was going to make them sit up and listen what was going to make them think oh my god science is amazing oh I found that really complicated but I get that now and I was really lucky um, I, I come from a family of teachers Okay. Um, and obviously they're they're so busy but I I was really lucky that um, I was in a position where I could really think about how I could apply my knowledge in a way that kids would really think you know they'd sit up and listen and that would hook them and engage them and hopefully maybe inspire them with this love of science so I was in a very very lucky position. And um, I was thinking about uh, when I looked at your kind of what, you, what you've been doing is 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 that decision I guess you have to make about thinking about am I going to explain the science I love to um, say maybe a, maybe just a primary school audience or a secondary school and my initial thought might be oh well it's a bit easier to do secondary because they probably know a bit more science and it's a bit more straightforward um, what made you choose primary because to me that seems a much more difficult challenge to to, to, to get um, DNA across when the students themselves haven't learned very much chemistry to kind of get a grip on it so what was why did you decide to go for the bigger challenge, in a sense, and go for the younger children? What what was your thought process there? Well, it's interesting because my children were that age. I knew what made them tick, so it, it was a good position to be in. And I, and my poor children, I could try things out on them to see if they worked or they didn't. Um, and and it's not it's not meant to sound like I'm full of it. I'm not meaning to do that, but. Um, the the very building blocks of DNA, the very starters, the the bit that you first need to understand, is actually very very simple. You know, getting across the concept that it's this book of instructions. You know, it's like a, a Lego kit. So you you know you have the instructions to build you, um, and and so it just seemed natural to do that um, for for primary, but to incorporate it into stories you know, so to make it into a way that they would understand. So it's teaching them DNA at a very, a very basic level. And my idea was to always move up then to secondary level. So to, to build up and build up. Um, and the idea, like we were talking about before, 
at secondary school, children are learning things. As I spoke to a lot of secondary school teachers and children are learning things like heterozygotes and homozygotes. And they're like, why are we learning about this? We're never going to come across this. We're never going to learn about this in real life. You know, so it actually helped to do the primary to then have the basics there to teach the secondary and to show them the real life cases like I was talking about. So my idea for the workshop was to be a clinical scientist. So the kids were going to spend the day. First of all, they were going to be GPs and they were going to have people come into them with their... I'd created this clown disease where um, at a certain age your your nose goes bright red and your ears keep growing and your feet grow. <laughs> and so the children yes, have... still for the primary, is it? Is that correct? Yeah. This, this was for secondary. This so secondary, this sorry, was, just checking. So, yeah, sorry. Carry on. Yeah, yeah sorry. so this was the idea at secondary. So they have to go to the GP. They have to look, they have to draw a family tree. So like they do in genetics, they'd learn about a Punnett square and yeah. what are the risks of the family um, having this clown diseases and then they then they test it so we do a practical um and then they work out some of them wouldn't have had the mutation so why was that you know and like in real genetics because some genes haven't been found yet so um so everything links to real life applications um and then they have to kind of decide do they want to have prenatal testing do they want to be tested to see if their children might have it you know if it's going to affect them so it's all real life applications that's why we need to know about homozygotes and heterozygotes so the the primary actually helps develop the secondary workshop so it seemed to me a natural progression and you talk about kind of prenatal testing it's interesting whether you do you delve into the kind of moral and ethical parts of uh, DNA in terms of that side of things, or is it something you don't really um, cover? Do you have any, any thoughts on that at all? Um, so I would do it secondary because it's yeah. very applicable to secondary and it's yeah. certainly part of the, cur- the curriculum. But for primary, um, it's interesting. So I wouldn't directly have that discussion, although the kids are great. They will have an opinion on that. And but but what we do talk about. So there's two examples, really. Um, The first example. So uh, I've got a workshop coming up. Should we bring back woolly mammoths? And that's a fantastic ethical debate that's totally applicable for primary school children, you know, as to whether we should genetically modify, um, you know, an elephant genome. So the DNA from an elephant to to bring back the woolly mammoth, because there are pieces missing in the DNA for the woolly mammoth. And should we bring back this creature? You know, should we? Uh, it's it's going to be it's a herd animal, and you're going to have one of it. Um, we've got climate change going on. It's very warm. Is it fair to bring back this hairy creature? You know, so that's a great um, ethical debate to have with them. And the other aspect is when we're talking about evolution. So I do a workshop where um, I I do a, an alien story, and I introduce them to the concepts of natural selection and inheritance and evolution, and we talk about. Um, examples of modern day natural selection so covid is an amazing example and that's something kids can totally relate to they've heard about these different mutants you know mutations on the news they know about the the kent variant they know about the delta variant that's a wonderful application to you know to to get them talking about Um, and the other one is also childbirth so i talked to them about actually um a lot of women would actually have died in in childbirth but we are you know we were so medically advanced now that these women survived so we're we're actually got um you know generations of women that actually aren't ideal for childbirth so and and so births are getting 
more complicated because of this artificial natural selection that we've introduced. And, and so lots of debates come out of that. And actually in lots of the workshops, as part of the workshop, lots of debates come up through that. So, it's, so, can, yeah. so can you so talking about the um, a childbirth issue? I mean, is is it is it the case that you can identify um, women who might have or might not have a difficulty in in um, childbirth at the moment? Or is that is that beyond uh, our, yeah. our understanding? Yeah, well, um, things like women with a very um, narrow pelvis, they may well have issues in childbirth. Obviously, yeah, um, these women these women wouldn't have survived. Mm. Um, and also women that, um, you know, now we have women that, that can develop diabetes in pregnancy, so they'll have bigger babies. Again, that's going to be an issue. Um, mm. And they're all things that natural selection would have naturally wiped out. So it's um, it's a really interesting one, actually. And it's an application of natural selection, you know, artificial natural selection that maybe children wouldn't have thought about. And circling back to what you're talking about, um, uh, the woolly mammoth and um, that kind of genetic technology makes me think about possibly because of my age of Jurassic Park and, um, yeah. you know, the possibility of bringing back dinosaurs and maybe primary school uh, kids might ask this question. I don't know. Um, but um, I always thought that as uh, uh, not, not a biology specialist, but I could totally see that that would be a possibility in terms of the technology. But what are your thoughts on the possibility of a Jurassic Park like scenario? Is that something you think you could bring back small reptiles that are from ancient DNA? Or do you think that is just too difficult and that will never be done? What do you think about that? Well, it's it's really interesting. And as you say, that's the question that I am asked the most. Can we bring back dinosaurs? Because I would really like a T-Rex in the school, which I just love. I love that. I love the idea of a T-Rex stomping around, doing the golden mile with the kids. But um, the reason that we can bring back woolly mammoths is because we've got preserved tissue. So um, the mammoths that are preserved in the, you know, in the permafrost, they come out and the tissue is intact. So you've got actual cells there and it's the cells that you can extract the DNA from. The problem is with the, the dinosaurs is they're fossilized. So they turn to stone. So the, so at the moment, you know, obviously the, the, the cells are completely gone you know, and, and, and the DNA as well. So the question is whether we could ever find a dinosaur that's preserved enough that the cells would be intact. That's the question. And who knows, maybe, you know, maybe somewhere there could be, and that really could, you know, um, increase the possibility. And in fact, they have been able to get a very small amount, but they've managed to get a small amount of, of protein um, and they used that to look at what was the closest ancestor of the dinosaurs, which they, it came out that the closest ancestor, uh, the, the most related protein sequence was with a chicken. And, and that's helped, obviously, with that, um, you know, or, or a hypothesis that, um, you know, the birds today are evolved from um, dinosaurs, which, you know, is fantastic. So who knows? We're discovering things all the time. Technology is advancing all the time. Maybe... Maybe we can, but currently we can't. But but something like mammoths is a possibility, and other kind of prehistoric mammals that are preserved. Okay, so, ma so, so mammals might be a possibility with dinosaurs. We're a little bit too far away from that at the moment. Okay, so yeah, it's a bit yeah, sad. That, but, um, I know, I know. I, I, I totally agree. You've you told me the truth like a true scientist, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, um, what I was going to ask you about? Oh, yeah. So, in terms of your your, your books, you've written some excellent books about um, how you know DNA within a, 
uh, a kind of literature context within yeah, primary school age children, aren't they? And um, context. Uh, how did you find that process? I know you obviously it kind of links quite nicely into your primary school um, uh, kind of uh, workshops, etc. But what made you then decide uh, to decide? Oh yeah, I'm going to write some books as well because you've done so many things already. Uh, why yeah. not write a book as well? So how did you find that process? Do you enjoy it? And are you going to write some more? Do you think? Yeah, well, um, what I wanted to do was to create, um, I, I know from talking to friends that are teachers and, um, uh, you know, my, my family, um, well, a friend said to me, you know, Maddie, why don't you write a book? And I thought, you know, I never thought it was a possibility, but funnily enough, I had all these stories in my head. Um, and it meant that at the moment I kind of do workshops in Norfolk and Suffolk. I, I you know, sometimes go a little bit further for, for special events, um, you know, the Cheltenham Science Festival um, uh, and the Barnes Literary Festival. But it would mean I could reach kids all over the world and get them excited about science, which is amazing. Uh, you know, my books are in Iceland, Australia, you know, all over Europe. They've gone to America. So all these kids getting excited about science, which is like a complete dream. And I knew that... Um, Teaching science in primary schools in particular, in particular, is really difficult to get those hours in, you know, because they're concentrating on the maths and the English. So here's a way that you can combine science with literacy and you've got scope there. So what I tried to do is fit it into the curriculum. So um, when the kids are learning about um, electricity or magnets, they can link it in when they're learning about evolution. It fits in perfectly with what they're learning about, you know, so they can understand how evolution is is working. Um, and as I said, I had these stories in my head. It was just so weird. I've got six stories in my head. So three have come out so far um, and it's such a relief to get them out. <laughs> um, and I love the process. I absolutely love the process. I um, I'm a bit sad. I plan out every chapter. Um, I know what's happening, but then I kind of have to because because it's a, a detective, so I have to plant the evidence. You know, the kids become forensic scientists, you know, so they're solving this mystery. And I like to end each chapter on a cliffhanger. So yeah. it, it gets them so they're, they're desperate to read the next chapter. And I I love that. I love it when kids come up to me and they go, oh, Matty, I, I read the whole thing in one day <laughs> because I just couldn't stop reading it. And I'm like, oh, yes, that's fantastic. So, um it's just it's brilliant to write and the actual thing so I'm, I'm just starting the fourth book at the moment which is combining vikings and covid <laughs> so vikings, that sounds very cool yeah. yeah yeah so the um so the the research is probably going to take me about a month just to okay. read read up and get interesting things that are going to um get kids interests um and you know things like it's so interesting so I, so vikings used to have crows on their boats so that when they got near land the crows mm. would fly off and that's when they knew they would be near land. So I think facts oh. like that to get in are really juicy. They're really good. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the, the fourth book is underway um, and then that should come out in East, uh, Easter. And then I'm writing a book for teachers. So how to teach primary school children about evolution, natural selection and inheritance. So little tricks and things to make that that learning simple and to avoid the misconceptions. Yeah, I mean, those, those books are so important because I know um, that primary school science um, of, often is, is, is the case that you, you don't always have science specialists. So anything that can help those non-specialist teachers uh, must be it must be amazing uh, in terms of support support for them. And you know uh, those who are naturally interested as well to, to push that forward and to, to add a bit of um, 
uh, kind of it, what I call it more interesting science to, 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 the, to the curriculum and um, given that context you say that kids kids like all those th those stories you talked about some gruesome some not but the kids love the gruesome stories so you know that's the thing that it, it engages them I'm really interested actually in uh, gonna um, we're running out of time at, uh, towards the end of the interview but I wanted to ask you before you went about um, your idea I'm not sure how far you got with it or how 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 wide ranging it might be but this idea that you you could have uh centers so, so lab centers that um i guess for, for primary and secondary students could visit that could give them a taste and the flavor of um what university labs were like so not necessarily in a, in a university per se but maybe what uh, what kind of techniques there might maybe available and it struck a chord with me as a former teacher because i was thinking about um what i used to teach at school which often to me felt a bit like 18th century science in terms of the kind of experiments you did and the ideas because they're the simpler ideas to a certain extent so you've got to start from the simpler simpler ideas to build up on those so what's your thoughts behind that how far have you got with that project about thinking about these these labs that could be um places where schools visit i guess and uh, are are really easily accessible to, to younger students who can see the future rather than being stuck in their kind of 60s comprehensive uh, school designed you know a long time ago um, what 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 are your thoughts on that and, and how far have you got? So um, so the next thing um, that I'm working on is the secondary genetics workshop. That's that's okay. key to me. Um, and and then then we'll come. So probably maybe one or two years time, I want to set up this children's laboratory and it would start in Norfolk. Um, and I've, I've got a friend. So we've kind of there are labs that um, that sadly are being used in in. A, a secondary school currently so they right. would be they would be ideal um and the hope was to work with places like the sanger institute and um, get sponsorship to get the latest technology in because as you say when you um when you go into secondary school budgets you know budgets are, are limited although there are a lot of fantastic teachers you know with this specialist um knowledge sometimes it's really um you know it in, in some schools that that isn't there and I know there's a there's a particular kit that a lot of the schools use and it's very difficult if you haven't worked in a lab and you're not used to that it's okay if everything goes to plan but mm. if it doesn't troubleshooting something like that is so difficult when you don't have that expertise so the plan was um so instead of the um you know you've got the very simple electrophoresis tanks in schools um is to have this modern technology and so kids it would be a children's laboratory so it would be for children from the age of four right up to 18 to work on different projects um you know genetics related subjects that are difficult to understand that we can demonstrate in the laboratory so for the younger children there might be a story and then we do a practical related to that so they can understand the science in the story the secondary um, I know there's a massive issue with kids on work experience. When they go into a laboratory, I know from working in the laboratory, you're so busy, it's very, very difficult to allow time to that student, to allow them to really get hands on. And a lot of these laboratories, they've got to be ultra clean. So you can't let somebody come in and contaminate these important samples. So the idea would be to get projects from laboratories that I can then set up in my laboratory to get the children working on. So I would facilitate the work experience for these kids. 
And what would be great is that the work that they're doing could then be used to publish a paper. So right. things like um, things like the bitterness tasting gene is really mm -hmm. interesting. So this is the gene that, you know, evolutionary wise, it, it was the um, the bit that that allowed us to taste things that tasted bitter. So we would spit them out because they would make us ill. And um, we've developed this, um, we've evolved this new type of mutation. Um, so it's really interesting to scientists to see how that new evolved gene, um, how dominant that is in the population. So if you imagine if you took two students in and they can screen a hundred people each maybe from their school, already you're building up a database and as more children come in they can screen more and more and you can really get an idea of how this um you know how this gene is evolving so projects like that and taking on projects around here we have fantastic science centers you know the quadrum institute the john innes center so kids can get a real flavor of what it's like to be a scientist and do these hands-on experiments there's a lovely experiment that the sanger institute do where they uh, the kids go outside and pick wild flowers and then they come in and they sequence them with these fantastic um, handheld sequences, which are amazing. And then they can identify the plants through their sequences, which is a brilliant application. So um, I just think it'd be so exciting. So, yeah, that's that's a that's that's coming. So that's Fine. that's coming my on. my future project. And would you like to see it go beyond beyond Norfolk and Suffolk and uh, spread across um, England and the UK? Uh, do you think that's a possibility or is it, I can imagine there's a lot of hurdles to, to, to roll these kind of things out. Is it something you want to spread wider than just your local area? Because I completely get your, you know, getting these specialists in. I appreciate obviously the, the tech support might be, you know, a challenge. And, you know, when you get to the more rural areas in the UK, it's difficult to find those centres and the expertise. But is it something you'd like to see grow a bit further or are you just happy of it being a regional kind of uh, East Anglian centre, as it were? Well, you know, there's already a lot of really good labs out there that do offer workshops for kids like that. But to make it more accessible, I mean, it would be a dream, wouldn't it? It'd be fantastic. We need to get there's so many um, children being turned off science by not having this hands-on opportunity you know particularly girls encouraging them into stem and, and showing them that you you can do this this is something that that you can do as long as you've got a passion to get kids interested it's so so important so yes if we could have a blueprint a bit like dna if we can have a blueprint and an instruction booklet to set up a lab to offer these facilities for kids and roll it out across the country how amazing would that be you know, now you're, uh, I mean, it sounds like an amazing idea. And uh, if anyone listens to this podcast and wants to get in touch with you to kind of help you with this project, I'm sure they get in touch and uh, you'll appreciate any help to kind of uh, get that started and get that, um, you know, um, developed. Uh, I think they'd be a great, you know, be, be a great person to work with because you can see a passion in science education. I was thinking um, now you are in science education um, uh, by a very circuitous route, I guess. Um, <laughs> When your children are grown up, do you think you might, do you think we'll go back to the kind of crime solving and the uh, the fish maybe, or the uh, or the medical science, or do you think, yeah, this is this is what you've, you've got real passion for now and you're gonna stay probably within the DNA uh, um, kind of sphere and the science education. You've got any thoughts about what you might do because, uh, you know, going forward next 10, 10 20 years with DNA? I, I mean, you know, it's always been a dream of my mind. I mean, in the books, I have this laboratory in the garden, which is fantastic. And I would love that. So, yeah, if I could get these labs rolled out, that would that would be amazing. But, you know, 
equally and that's the that's the incredible thing about dna i'd, I'd love to go back to the forensics or even using dna for um, to answer questions from the past from history i mean that's a another yeah. thing so working with archaeologists again is something i'm passionate about and how lovely to do a, a, something that's your passion and that's your job it's just then it's not work is it it's just fantastic so yeah i'd any of those pathways would be incredible but i think the lab one really would be you know that that would be my dream Definitely, and a great, great, um, you know, again, practical, we talk about practical application of science again, and you focused on that, and with the education sphere, looking at, you know, problems to solve and uh, making a real difference to the, the children that are going to interact with those labs. It's a fantastic uh, idea, and um, I, wish, I wish you all the best of luck with that, because it sounds amazing. I wanted to ask you about um, a couple of recommendations, actually, before we go, because our, our time is coming to an end. Um, yes. And um, I know you've got your excellent books out. I'm, I'm going to encourage people to read those excellent books. But are there any other books um, for primary school children or, or secondary? So more, I suppose, the popular science, but 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 maybe that you would recommend to get children into DNA and getting really fired up about it if they haven't had the opportunity to maybe have sessions that you deliver. What, what would you recommend on that side of things um, for children? Yeah, so, um, well, firstly, I would say um, I've done a series of podcasts that are related to the book. That's another great way. So talking to top scientists in their field, um, all about DNA, the different aspects we've talked about today, forensics, conservation, um, malaria. So if you go to the DNA detectives um, on any podcasting platform, you will find okay. those. The other books that I would recommend are Isabel Thomas does fantastic books, particularly the one um, called Moth beautifully illustrated fantastic um at showing you know the the story of the the peppered moth so um explaining evolution to children her books are superb there's another lady called um lisa mullen um she's done a book called my dna diary covid19 which is absolutely superb and she does a lot of books um again stories talking about dna and explaining to children about dna so that's another one that i would recommend and of course my own books of course, yeah, of course, they are, they are very good. So, um, excellent, recommend, excellent recommendations there for, for a bit of inspirational DNA science. Um, it's been really great talking to you today. I really appreciate your time because I know you are, as this podcast has shown, a very, very busy person. So I appreciate you coming on to give us a, uh, some time today. Um, I'm really happy that you're doing some really pragmatic work and you're helping science education. So thank you very much for sharing your view from the lab. Thank you. So there you have it, another episode of The View from the Lab has flown by. I hope you found Dr Hartley's journey from the lab to the classroom as interesting as I did. Do you know anyone who we should catch up with on the podcast? If so, please email your suggestions to me on andy.woods at pearson.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you on the next one.